You are listening to Church History with Pastor Steve Scoggins. These episodes were originally recorded in front of a live audience at First Baptist Church, Hendersonville, North Carolina. These episodes are abbreviated lectures to be used for the Church History course at Fruitland Baptist Bible College in Hendersonville, North Carolina. We hope you enjoy these episodes and are encouraged as well as enlightened by the content. Welcome you to the Fruitland's Church History course. This is our sixth lecture. I've entitled it, God Still Has His People. And we're going to go from Bernard of Clairvaux through Luther in tonight's lecture. Now, we Protestants tend to call those 500 or more years before Martin Luther, the Dark Ages, and they were dark times in the Catholic Church. I've stressed over and over again in the lectures that the church had lost the simple John 3.16 gospel, that whosoever believeth in him is all that God asks of us in order to have everlasting life. They had come up with a complicated way of salvation based on sacraments that were controlled by the church and ultimately by the Pope. And if you give one man that kind of power, can you imagine? He can determine. If you, he can cut you off from the sacraments. That means you can't go to heaven. He can cut your nation off from the sacraments. That means nobody in your nation can go to heaven. It, it calls there to be a great centering of power. And unfortunately, in the years preceding Martin Luther, the popes were not good men. There were two very wealthy families that plotted and bribed and seemed to alternate with each other over who got to be the next pope. You might recognize their names, the Borgias and the Medicis. And they would go back and forth seesawing. Uh, the Borgia, Borgia was one of the popes when Martin Luther made his trip later on. We'll talk about that. Under his reign, he actually had an orgy where he brought in 200 prostitutes into the papal palace. Uh, that, that's the kind of men that were serving as popes in this day and time. So with a confused picture of salvation and bad leaders, the question that might come to your mind or my mind is this. Does that mean that everybody for nearly a thousand years was lost, that nobody had a chance of salvation because the gospel wasn't clearly presented? With that said, let me make a distinction. There's a difference between presenting the gospel clearly and understanding that the gospel is the gospel, whether or not it's, whether or not it's clearly presented or not. For instance, John 3.16, whosoever believeth in him, will not perish, they have everlasting life. Well, that may not have been taught to the people, but they were taught things like the Apostles' Creed, where they were taught to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. And even though the gospel was confused, I believe that there will be many people in heaven through the Middle Ages who, in spite of the confusion of the gospel, did believe in Jesus, who died for them and rose again. It is dark times. You think, does God have anybody left? It reminds me of Elijah when he complained to God and said, I only I am left. And God said, no, I've got 7,000 more people that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. So what I want to do in this lecture tonight as we lead up and then look at Luther, I want to show you people that were incredible Christians who loved Jesus in these dark times. The first is a man named Bernard of Clairvaux. He lived the years 290 to 1153. He was a man who was known to have the deepest walk with God of any in his lifetime. Uh, in fact, because of his walk with God, one time there was two different men claiming to be the Pope and they brought him in to settle it and he chose the man he thought had the closest walk with God. 
Um, he settled a war between the king of France and his people. But what made Bernard unique was this. He preached the love of God in a day when the Catholic Church held everybody under its control by the fear of God. If you don't do what he says, you're bound for hell. Or if you don't do everything to the final degree, then you're going to spend years burning in purgatory. And so everybody was basically kept in line by a fear of God and the wrath of God. And Bernard taught the love of God. In fact, one of the ways he taught the love of God was he emphasized the love relationship in the Trinity. He pictured how the Father loves the Son and the Holy Spirit and the, they all love one another. And that basically what happens when we become a Christian is we're drawn into that circle of love. Now because he knew the Lord so intimately and had such a, an, a grip on the unseen realities, his monastery that he founded was in Clairvaux, France. And here's a man who saw what you can't see with your eyes. So we have come to a term that is actually a misplaced term uh, from, from Bernard. People are called clairvoyant if they see the things that the eye cannot see. Not in the way of Bernard, but that's become a term in our English language. Now, being a person who was a monk, who had a monastery, who focused on what Jesus did for us and the love of God, if you've ever been to a Catholic church, they always have a prominent crucifix, which is a, a statue of Jesus while he hangs on the cross with the nails in his hands. And I imagine he went there and knelt and prayed many hours looking at that scene of Jesus dying for us. And after meditating upon that, I believe that was the basis for him writing one of our great hymns in Christian history, O Sacred Head. Let me read you the words. O Sacred Head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. How pale thou art with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How doth thy visage languish, which once was bright as morn. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered, t'was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor, vouchsafe me to thy grace. And then the last verse, listen to these words. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be? Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. I focused on that hymn when I was a young pastor just beginning. And one of the things that I noticed among pastors who were toward the end of their ministry, I saw a lot of them, they'd lost the fire. They were treading water until it was time to retire and going through the motions. And I heard that line, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. And for years I prayed, Lord, if I lose my love, just take me home. Just take me home. I don't want to outlive my love for thee. The second of the Christians I want you to focus on during these dark ages is a wonderful Christian named St. Francis. He lived from 1181 to 1226. He was the son of a wealthy merchant. Uh, one of the things that he wanted to do as an adventurous young man, he joined an army and that went, one city-state went against another. He was captured and made a prisoner of war for a year. So for a year, he had nothing to do but 
time on his hands, waiting to see if he would get released. And during that time, he began for the first time in his life to seriously go after the Lord, began to seek the Lord. He kept hearing while he was at prison of war, God saying to him, go rebuild my church. And the thought that came to his mind was in his hometown of Assisi, Assisi, there was a dilapidated church. He thought, that's what God wants me to do is go and raise the money and rebuild that church and make it look good again. Well, when he got out, he had no money of his own. His dad had all the money. So he took the horse his dad gave him. He, got, he took possessions from his dad and he sold them. And he took the money and began to rebuild the church. And his father found out that he was using money without his permission. And he took him before the bishop to demand that not only would he, should he stop, but he had to give his father back all the money. So while he was standing before the bishop, he declared these words, I now have only one father, the heavenly father. And in a dramatic way, he took off all his clothes since the clothes were the last thing that belonged to his father and was stark naked. And he walked out of the church because he's not going to take anything with him. His father had outside the church was a field. It had a scarecrow that had a brown robe tunic on it with a rope belt. He took the robe off of that, the brown robe, and took the, the, the rope belt, and he put that on. And to this day, the clothes that Franciscan monks wear are the brown tunic with the rope for a robe. Uh, it was a different type of, 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 of lifestyle that he wanted to. As he began, to, people were attracted to become his followers. He wanted to start a new order and got permission to do that. But he was a joyful person. He was somebody that loved to sing. He loved nature. One of the reasons why he's a popular saint today is all those folk who love animals and the planet. That's, that's their favorite saint. Because he'd walk out and say, hello, sister squirrel. Hello, brother bird. And he'd sing to him. We've got the hymn, the canticle of the sun that's still being sung today. But his idea of what you do as a monk and a monastery was you would plant monasteries where the monks didn't stay in the walls and hide. They went out to take care of the people in the community. They spent their days outside ministry. They became more mission stations. One of the things that he has left behind is one of the greatest prayers in Christian history. Let me read you this prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Another one of God's people during this time was a wealthy merchant named Peter Waldo. He was a man that had very little thoughts about God, but he was in a very banquet with the best food and best entertainment. And his good friend was sitting next to him. All of a sudden, in the middle of the banquet, his friend hit his plate. He died suddenly right next to him. And for the first time, this wealthy young man began to think about God and, and eternal truths. 
Soon after that, he was walking through the town. And some of the Christians in that day and time would do plays where they would act out stories from the Gospels. And somebody was acting out where Jesus turned to his disciples and said, leave everything and follow me. And he felt like that was God's call to him. So he decided that he would become a witness for the Lord. And he recruited other lay witnesses to help him. But let me tell you what he did that changed his life. And this is going to start us in the trajectory toward the Reformation. Since he had money, he had enough that he could pay two priests to take the time to translate the Bible into French. Remember at that time, the Bible was basically only found in Latin in Europe. He did not know Latin. So he had never read the Bible, but very few people had. So he had them to translate the Bible into French. And so for the first time on his own, he got to read the Bible. And you've got to understand what a shock it was. When he read the Bible, you know what he didn't find? There's no Pope in the Bible. There's no purgatory in the Bible. Now, if you were one of those that lived uh, around 1200, as he did, you would have thought, you go to the church, the Pope's the main thing. The sacraments are the main things. Purgatory is the main threat. I mean, you would think it would have to be everywhere because that's all you heard about. But none of that was in the Bible. So he began to send out witnesses two by two to go out and share that simple gospel that had been lost. But the Pope declared them to be heretics and thousands of his followers over the next few centuries were put to death. They're called the Waldensians. And some of those persecuted Waldensians left Europe and came to a town in North Carolina called Valdez. And that was founded by Waldensians who came here looking for refuge. The third person I want to share with you about is one of the giants of this day and time. He lived from 1330 to 1384. John Wycliffe was the head of Oxford University. He did something very dangerous, just like Peter Waldo did. Now, he was educated. He could read the Latin. He could find out for himself. So he, too, read the Bible. And you know what? He found out there's no purgatory. There's no pope. The ceremonial system that he sees in churches is not found in the New Testament. Uh, There's no transubstantiation. He was shocked at what he found. And so he says, the people need to know what the Bible says. Now, this is before the printing press. So what he and his followers did was by hand, they would begin to take portions of the scriptures and write them out to hand to people. That would become their tracks. Have you seen this? Here's a part of this gospel. Here's one of Paul's letters. Have you read this? It's going to change your life. And they went around and they began to hand out and distribute the Bible. Now, here's the deal. He was able to do it in relative safety. If you remember last lecture, I talked about the fact that during the Hundred Years' War between England and France, that one of the things that the French king did was he went down and kidnapped the Pope, brought him out of Rome and took him to Avignon, France, and then made sure that once that Pope was dead for the next 70 years, every Pope was a Frenchman. So England and France are at war. And now the Pope is no longer in Rome. He's in France and he's a Frenchman. So when the Pope heard that this man is criticizing, say there is no Pope, he said, you've got to condemn him. And the English went, I'm not listening to any Frenchman. (laughs) We're at war with y'all. 
So he was able to carry on with his writings and his sending out his group that we'll call the Lollards. He was able to do that in relative freedom because of that war and because of the fact that the Roman Catholic Church was now under the control of the French. However, after the war was over and the Pope was moved back to Rome and was able to reestablish his authority, unfortunately, Wycliffe had died of natural causes. So he really wanted to burn him at the stake. So he ordered his body dug up and burned at the stake and his ashes cast cast into the river so that he could not have a proper Christian burial. But his writings went everywhere. They were the seeds of what would be the Reformation. One of those who read his writings in a part of Europe called Bohemia was a man named John Huss. Huss, by the way, in Bohemian means goose. He would one day be burned at the stake. That's where we get our phrase, the goose is cooked. So here's John Huss, John Goose. And, and he read Wycliffe's writings and he went to the Bible himself. And he, he came to that same conclusion that the Bible did not teach a pope, did not teach the sacramental way of salvation. All of the, he came to understand salvation by faith alone. All the things that Luther would proclaim later, he got a hundred years before that. And the gospel began to spread. He even changed the services into their native language, the Czech language, so the people would understand what was going on at church. Well, he was ordered by his emperor to stand trial because the Catholic Church wanted to declare him to be a heretic. To be declared to be a heretic would mean you'd be burned at the stake. But the emperor gave him safe passage. That meant he promised him, you can go, go defend yourself, and then you'll have passage to come back home. And then, so you go do this, don't worry about this. He took the emperor's promise of safe passage, went to be put on trial, was declared to be a heretic, and then the Catholic Church says, once you're declared to be a heretic, you don't have to keep your word to a heretic. And he was taken immediately and he was burned at the stake. That will bear upon the mind of Martin Luther later when we come to him. There's one more person I want to mention in this listing of the people God still had in these days before Martin Luther. Savonarola lived between 1452 and 1498. He became the pastor of a very influential wealthy city called Florence. Uh, the main man that ruled that town was Lorenzo Medici. And Medici was the wealthy patron of the arts. Uh, he cared more about art than he did about God. And so when Savonarola came to town. His first requirement was to go and pay his respects to Savonarola. He refused. He said, God didn't make, to make his respects to Medici. He said, Medici did not make me the pastor. God made me the pastor. And so he refused to go. Well, he began to preach that God is about to put to death Medici and the Pope. Right after he began to preach that, Medici became terminally ill. And he called for the pastor to come and give him last rites. In the Catholic Church, the seventh of the sacraments was last rite. You need that in order to ensure that you can get to heaven. So Savonarola went to see him because he was a member of his church. And Savonarola looked at him and said, I'll give you last rites on these conditions. That you repent of your sins, you give all your money away to the poor, and you allow Florence to become a democracy. And Medici turned his 
face toward the wall in the bed and his back towards Savonarola and Savonarola walked out. And then he died shortly after that. Later, the king of France, King Charles, invaded Italy and the Medicis had to flee because they didn't want to die in this invasion. But Savonarola as the pastor met them before they came to Florence and he convinced them to spare the city of Florence. This made him a hero. But he came back and he began to preach. Do you realize how close you came to being destroyed, being judged by God? And God should judge you because he said, because you are the center of lewd paintings. Now, when we talk about pornography in that day and time, we're talking about all those ladies that were painted without clothing in the Middle Ages. And they had plays and books that were were, were bawdy books. And he said, these are vanities and you need to destroy them. So he had the people of Florence come and bring their lewd paintings and their lewd books. And they made a big pile and they set them on fire. And that's referred to as the bonfire of the vanities. But it wasn't long before they turned on him. And then he was burned at the stake. Now we come to Martin Luther, but let me tell you something. I've had the privilege of being in Worms, Germany, where Martin Luther will eventually stand trial. Outside of the church in Witten, in, in Worms, Germany, there is an impressive statue. It has a picture of Martin Luther holding his Bible on the top of the statue. At his feet are four men. The picture is, is that Martin Luther was standing on the shoulders of four who went before him. Those four men are Savannarola, Wycliffe, Waldo, and Huss. So you see how God has moved toward this day. Well, Martin Luther was born in 1483. Uh, He was born into a middle-class family. His father had great desires for his son. He wanted him to go to college. He got him in the best university in, in all of Germany, the University of Erfurt. He wanted him to become a lawyer because what his father wanted was grandchildren and the son who made enough money could take care of him in his old age. Well, he graduated in 1505 with a master's degree, but in that same year, he was walking through the woods when a severe lightning storm hit, and the lightning hit so close to him, he felt the electricity go through him. He thought he was going to die, and he cried out, St. Anne, spare me, and I'll become a monk. His deal with God, you get me home tonight, and I'll become a monk, and he kept his bargain. It broke his dad's heart. He became one of the most sincere monks of all the Middle Ages. Let me give you a quote from Luther himself. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by monkish works, I certainly could have been entitled to it. Of this all the friars that knew me could testify. If I had continued on, it would have caused my death through my watchings and fastings. He had such almost a a, a dysfunctional sense of sin that he would go into the room where they did penance and take a, a whip and whip his back until the ground was full of blood and he would faint because of the loss of blood. Throughout every winter, because of oh, to show God how sorry he was for his sins, he never used a blanket in those German winters. He fasted so much it hurt his digestive system for the rest of his life. Uh, every Catholic is required to go to confession. Uh, he had to go to his abbot, Stalpitz, who was a good man. But each day he went and spent between one and two hours confessing his sins. Daily, one to two hours confessing sins to his abbot. Can you imagine if you were the abbot and you looked up and you saw Martin Luther coming? I mean, if you've only got 22 hours left, how can you come up with two hours of sin to confess? In fact, in frustration, Stalpitz once said to him, Martin Luther, don't you come back here till you've committed a real sin. 
Well, as zealous as he was, he was in the Augustinian order. There was a dispute between the uh, Augustinians and another order of, of monks. And so he was asked to represent the Augustinians in Rome. And he thought, wow, what a privilege. I'll go to the holy city. I'll be able to meet the Pope. I'll go where there's so many opportunities to get your sins forgiven, so many relics to see. Uh, and, and so he went there expecting to go to a place full of the presence of God. Instead, he came there and he found brothels that did nothing but service the priests in town. The Pope at that particular moment was a Borgia. And instead of wearing papal gear, he wore an, uh, a knight's armor and rode around on a horse like a general more than a pope, there was nothing spiritual in that town. But the highest action that you could do as a Roman Catholic, they had taken the steps that Jesus had carried his cross uh, over in, from Jerusalem and put that in, in Rome. It was called the Scala Sancta. And if you started at the bottom on your knees, kissed every step, said the proper Our Fathers and Hail Marys, by the time you got to the top, you were guaranteed to have your sins forgiven. He got to the top and he thought to himself, Nothing's changed. He had done the holiest action, and he still had no sense that his sins were forgiven. So Stalpitz did something that I think was extraordinary. You see, most monks and most priests never read the Bible in that day and time. Bibles were hard to find. Most of them were chained in a monastery. monastery. There was a school attached to his monastery in Wittenberg, a university. So Stalpitz made him the Bible teacher. For the first time in his life, he began to read the Bible. He, his first course was on the Psalms. He, he said, before this, I always viewed God as someone that I actually hated. I felt like God was up in the sky watching me, waiting for me to take a half step in the wrong direction so he could, with delight, send me to hell. That was his picture of a God who was so stern and demanding. And then he began to read the Psalms and he began to see about the mercy of God. And then... He taught the book of Romans, and the verse that brought about the Reformation was Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. Isn't it amazing how one phrase can jump off of the page and change your life? The he, it, it dawned on him. I'm not saved by these elaborate works. I'm not saved by my acts of penance. You get to be just by faith. The just shall live by faith. Let me read to you from his own words. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness which through grace and sheer mercy justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. I broke through. His life was changed. And this brings us now to 1517. He's rediscovered the gospel. He has a heart for his people who he realized they've not been told the truth. And he wants them to have that same experience of forgiveness and rebirth. But the Pope at that particular time was a Medici. And he was building the St. Peter's Basilica. And he'd hired a very expensive man named Michelangelo to do some painting and some sculpting. And he had to raise a lot of money. So what the Pope did was he began to offer the sale of something called indulgences. The Pope said that I have the power to forgive sins. I have the power to get somebody out of purgatory. 
And so he would get them to go around and sell. You could get forgiveness of past sins. You could get forgiveness of future sins. Martin Luther ran into one of his parishioners drunk as a skunk on Saturday night and said, how are you going to be able to come to church? He pulled out a pocket. I've got this one already taken care of. And, and he, it just caused his blood to boil. But the worst thing he did was play upon the fears because you see the Catholic Church had implied that everybody's going to spend hundreds or perhaps thousands of years in purgatory before they're worthy of heaven. He said, I can get your relative out of heaven, out of purgatory into heaven right now. And so his chief salesman was a man named Tetzel and he came up with this slogan. He had a metal uh, box that you put your coin in. He said, before the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Well, Martin Luther knew that this is all nonsense. This is not true. You can't find that in the Bible that he's come to love. And so he decided that the, the priest in that area needed to have a discussion. They didn't have chat rooms on the computer. What they would do is they would put in Latin what they wanted to discuss and would nail it to the door of the church so that uh, the, those who knew Latin, the, the, the scholars, the priests could read it and then have discussions later. So he put 95 things that he'd been thinking about. We call them the 95 Theses. And let me read you just a couple of them. The first of the theses, by the way, he loved the new Greek New Testament that had been published by Erasmus. See, for years, people had read only the Latin, and Jerome had put a lot of Roman Catholic teaching into the Latin translation. Instead of in Acts 2, repent and be baptized, Jerome had translated that, do penance and be baptized, and you'll be forgiven. Well, there's a world of difference between repent and have a lifetime of good works and actions that you have to do. So he read it and found, no, it's not do penance, it's repent. So his very first of the 95 theses are, is these words. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. But he hit home at this rich Medici Pope who was stealing from the poor to build his church. Here's some other of the theses. Why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and the dire needs of the souls that are there if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? And then he asked this, another thesis, why does not the Pope whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest crasses build the Basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of poor believers? You can hear how, you can see how that would be a hit. Well, here's what happened. He didn't, he wasn't behind this. Somebody took those theses down that were written in Latin, translated them into German. And there'd been something that had been invented in the 1450s called the printing press. And without his permission, they translated all 95 theses into German and published them. And they began to spread like wildfire. And that hit a nerve. And I really think the difference between Wycliffe and Huss and all of those before was they didn't have access to mass uh, production that a printing press gave. So it began to spread. At first, the Pope didn't care about it. He heard about it and said, that's just a drunken German. And he was right on half of that. He, um, no, both sides, really. Uh, <laughs> he liked his Wittenberg beer. but uh, So he didn't pay attention, but it began to spread. And so finally, the Pope decided he's got to have, have an action. So a year later, he sent his champion, Cardinal Cajetan, to come down and debate Martin Luther about these things that he's saying. And Martin Luther 
destroyed him in a debate. He won it hands down in the eyes of the people. The Pope knew he had a problem. So in 1520, he did that action that caused a king to stand in the snow in the winter in order to have it reversed. The most fearful thing the Pope could do to an individual, he sent out a papal bull or declaration of excommunication. Now remember that it stopped kings in their tracks. When Martin Luther got his bill of ex, bull of excommunication, he asked everybody, come join me out in the middle of the city square. And then he dramatically burn it. That's how little he thought of that, 1520. But in 1521, he, had, he was told to do something he could not say no to. His emperor, not the pope, but his emperor, told him he had to go stand trial in Worms, Germany for these charges, but he gave him safe passage there and back. Martin Luther knew from Huss how, how much that would be worth. When he made his way to Worms, Germany, he literally thought that he was going there to be burned at the stake. Now, when he arrived in Worms, Germany, folks, the streets were lined. It was like a Super Bowl parade. He was such a hero. And they were cheering for him. But he had such a sense of spiritual warfare. He said, when I looked at the buildings on every tile of every roof, I saw a demon sitting there. They brought him in for the trial. He prepared to defend what he'd been teaching. But the cardinal that was in charge of the trial says, no, you've already been declared a heretic. You've already been excommunicated. And he had, they had a table full of his books. And they said, you only have two choices today. You can recant or you die. That's your two choices. Which of the two words would you like? Recant or die. And Martin Luther went, can I have a night? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> How human is that? And so he went home that night, got prayed up. Uh, walked in with the sense of the presence of God. And so they had this table full of books. And just to get down to the nitty gritty, basically what he said was, I, I can't go with popes or councils. They've contradicted each other. He said, my conscience is bound to the word of God. And then he cried out, here I stand. I can do no other. And some say he raised his fist and repeated these words, God help me. Amen. And he literally thought that he would die. But because he was so popular, the emperor had to honor his safe passage back. But they made it clear once he arrives back in Wittenberg, it's open season. Anybody who kills this man will be doing a favor to God. So on his way back, he was in a horse and buggy when all of a sudden he heard armed soldiers coming after him. He thought, this is it. I'm going to die right here. But it turned out his governor, Frederick the Wise, had decided without his permission to kidnap him and take him to safety in, an, in an anonymity. So he took him to the Wartburg Castle. And during that time, he gained weight because he was no longer living like a monk. Uh, he let his hair grow. They had, the monks had the little bald place that they did in the middle. He grew regular hair. He grew a beard. And he was called Knight George, Junger George. And so here he was, holed up for a year. And what he did in that year, Christianity Today says the greatest thing that Martin Luther ever did happened in that year in Wartburg Castle. He translated the New Testament into German because he was convinced if the people could just read the Bible themselves, they will never be enslaved by a pope again. So he was able to be published when he got out. Uh, let me share one more part of him because there's so much 
There's so many ways that he restored the church. For instance, he restored congregational singing to the church. Before Martin Luther, before the Reformation, only the priest or the little boy's choir would sing. The congregation didn't sing. You had to sit there in quiet until you came up to get the wafer at the end. But, but so it was a service that you didn't participate. He said, no, we've got to get the people singing again. And he wrote a song that I want to put, call to your attention, an emphasis that is there. There's one scholar who has read all hundred volumes of Luther's works. And he found that on 80% of the pages, there was a reference to the devil. Martin Luther was a man who lived with a real sensitivity to spiritual warfare. In that Wartburg Castle in the study, there's an ink blot on the wall. Because one time he felt the presence of a demon and he picked up his inkwell and threw it at him. And it's on the wall there today. But this is a song that we still sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But it's a song that is filled with terms of spiritual warfare. So let me read you just the two last verses. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours, through him who with us sideth. Let good and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So he restored congregational singing, but he also did one more thing. He helped restore marriage to the priesthood, to the pastorate. Uh, as he studied the Bible, he came to see that, you know what? Peter was married. This whole idea of a, pa- a priest must be celibate is not found in the New Testament. And so he began to encourage priests to marry. He encouraged monks to leave their con—I mean, nuns to leave their convents and to find a husband. But there was a problem with that second thing. Women, by the time they were in their middle teens, were married in that day and time. So if you have a nun who is, oh, God forbid, as old as 28 or 30, there was no hope for her in that society. There was no job for her to do, and, and, and that was past the age of marrying. So he got word from eight nuns in a convent that if you can get us out and find us husbands, we'll leave the convent. So he sent in empty barrels, had them get hidden in the barrels, and then had them brought out. And he was able to find husbands for seven of the eight. But the eighth one was a very stubborn woman in her personality. She wasn't unattractive, but she wouldn't have been a beauty queen. And he couldn't find anybody willing to marry her, so he said, okay, I'll marry you. So at age 42, he married Catherine von Bora, who is an extraordinary woman herself. You've got to understand, when she married him, he's the most famous Christian on the planet. And what they did was when they closed the monastery in Wittenberg, they gave him the monastery And so it had a huge table where all the monks used to eat. Well, every night you'd have between 10 and 50 guests who would come to be at the table just to hear him rant and rave. And by the way, once he drank enough Wittenberg beer, he'd be cussing the Pope. So you have, so somebody's got to oversee that. Well, Katie got married. She checked the finances out and found that that they were going under. So she arranged with the bank that they could never cash a check without her signature. 
Uh, on one particular occasion, Martin Luther tended to struggle with depression. He went into his room for two weeks. He said, don't even come in. Just bring my food and leave. I, I'm, I'm under the spell of this depression. And after two weeks, she walked in. He had not heard of anything going out in the outside world. And she was wearing her widow's outfit. You know, every woman had a black dress that you wore to funerals. So he asked her, who died? And she said, well, God died. And as he said, how dare you blaspheme? And she said, well, I just figured God died the way you're acting. And she shamed him out of that room. So five children, 20 years of marriage. It was a wonderful life. He basically spent the rest of his life as a local pastor, not so much as a writer, but as a local pastor. And I appreciate that. Now, your discussion question for this week, if you'll write that 500-word essay, what I want you to do is I want you to trace through the lives of those we've studied and show me how the real key to the Reformation was a rediscovery of the Bible.